Take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter number 5. Luke chapter number 5. I came up with a great sermon title today. Jesus calls his first disciple. That's very creative of me. <laughs> we, we've, we've come to one of the more fascinating accounts of Jesus' ministry in Luke. As Jesus' popularity grew, so did the crowds. And at, it is at this point that he calls his first disciples. So if you'll stand with me, we'll read God's word together. I want to point out something. The very first three words are on one occasion. Remember that, and I'll say this in the sermon, but the previous passage, the end of Luke 4, it's a summary of all of his ministry. So he summarizes everything. Then he comes back and he says, on one occasion. And so this is what's going on here. While the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out from a little from land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come help them, and they came and, and filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken, and so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid, for now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. We thank you, Lord, for this simple snapshot in the ministry of Jesus where he begins to call his disciples. Every single one of us are called to be your disciple. Every single one of us are called to evangelize. Every single one of us have the, the opportunity to gaze in awe at your glory. And I pray that that will be the case today in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. So where's the, the last uh, snapshot that we looked at of Jesus' ministry highlighted the authority of his word. This section uh, shows us Jesus' divine knowledge and his divine enablement of man to do what he calls him to do. And that's important. You're, you're going to see the majesty and the greatness of the glory of Jesus and realize that he calls you, and when he calls you, he also enables you. Isn't that wonderful to know? This is a real-life event in Jesus' ministry, but it serves as a parable. It's, it's an illustration of our ministry with Christ. Jesus is the one who is omniscient. He is omnipotent omnipotent and he is holy and whenever we have an encounter with God the result is change some have even resorted to calling this this little event a theophany if you remember what a theophany is from the old testament it's an old testament appearance of the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ and some 
Theologians call this a sort of a theophany. In other words, Jesus is displaying his majesty and glory and power. And and you'll see why they say that in a little bit. But Peter's reaction to Christ's self-revelation is exactly the same as people in the Old Testament when they saw God in all his glory. Much debate has ensued whether this scene is the same one as described in Matthew chapter 4 and and Mark chapter 1. Because Matthew and Mark both record Jesus looking at Peter and saying, follow me. But Luke doesn't record the command. So what this leads some people to say is that this is a different event and that Luke is high and, and that Luke is highlighting Jesus' promise to Peter that one day he's going to have a, a new vocation. And another problem why they say this is a different event is the placement within the three gospels. For example, Mark places this event before all the things that happened at Capernaum whereas Luke seems to have switched them up. But if you remember that the gospel writers were not as concerned about strict chronological order, then this is easy to account for why it's in a different place. The gospel writers were not like Americans. Americans, you go to court and they want to know this happened and this happened and this happened and this happened and it's got to be in sequence The gospel writers wrote generally in sequence, but what they were most concerned about is that people see who Jesus Christ is, and so they highlighted different events. Jesus may have called the disciples several times. We don't know. It seems as though that the main way to account for the differences is to realize that Luke is focusing on Peter and shows the sovereignty and holiness of Jesus in a way that Matthew and Mark do not in this particular event. And so let's, let's look at the scene. Let's set the scene of what's going on. In verse number one, we find Jesus teaching. Verse number one says, On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God. There's that emphasis on the word of God again. He was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. Now, we already understand Jesus was drawing immense crowds. 1,000, 5,000, 10,000, 15,000 people. We don't know. The, the crowds were immense. But these crowds were coming to hear the word of God. And Jesus is still continuing his, his word ministry. Now, the Bible, Luke says he's by the lake of Gennesaret. What is that? What's the lake of Gennesaret? Well, if you've uh, been in church any time at all, you know it's the Sea of Galilee. And... Um, Gennesaret, I want to just show this to you. Can I show you on a map real quick? This is the Sea of Galilee, okay? It's basically a lake, 8 miles wide, 14 miles long. Um, If you look, you can see there's Capernaum, uh, the the little village. Bethsaida is up in the mountains a little bit. Mount of Beatitudes, it doesn't look like it. I'll explain why in a minute, but this is a very steep hill right here. Tagba, uh, Tabga, in case you're not... You don't know where that is. That's the possible location where Jesus cooked the fish after his resurrection and called Peter to feed my sheep. Remember that in John 21? Most people believe that that happened in this area right here. Now, where's Gennesaret? The reason they call it Gennesaret 
is this area right here is a real long, wide, flat, fertile plain. And if you go there to Israel today, you can see all kinds of agriculture. And it was the same during that day. As a matter of fact, if you've gone with me to Israel, we stay right here when we stay on the Sea of Galilee, right in this area. Uh, this is, um, um, now I forgot the name of the place. I would. But uh, anyway, this is, now the reason why everything looks flat, I'm just going to show you one more thing and I move on. I love pictures. I could show you pictures all day long. But the reason everything looks flat is we're so much higher. Uh, this picture was taken from Mount Arbel. If you're familiar with Arbel, it's 900 feet above the Sea of Galilee. And here's another picture. This is uh, me with our missionary Ben Layer from Poland that we support. You get an idea how high this rock outcropping is. It's 900 feet above the Sea of Galilee. So that's Gennesaret. And, and so Luke uses a place along the Sea of Galilee to explain um, the, 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 the Gennesaret, the sea or the lake of Gennesaret. Um, the crowd is pressing in on Jesus. Now this is common in his ministry for the crowd to be pressing in on him. For example, in Luke chapter number 8, it says, For he had an only daughter about 12 years of age, and she was dying as Jesus went the people, what? They pressed around him. In Luke chapter 19, we see, and he was seeking to find Jesus, who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. And so the crowd, it, it basically, wherever Jesus went, there was a crowd. It was very hard for him to get away from a crowd. I can't imagine the constant pressure. Jesus didn't get me time. You know what I'm saying? There were people around him all the time. We, we see it with celebrities. They just get, they get sick of the crowds all the time. Jesus was three and a half years with crowds pressing in on him, watching everything he did, listening to everything that he said. And so verse 2 says that he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them, and they were washing their nets, getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. Again, I've said this before, the position of rabbis, rabbis always sit to teach. Everybody else stands to listen. We ought to try that sometime. <laughs> Take all the chairs out. Y'all can stand, and I'll sit up here in some sort of a throne. Something that, um, to keep me from being pushed into the water, because that's what was happening. The crowds were pressing in on him. Jesus gets into Peter's boat, puts out a little ways from the land. And even though Luke is now highlighting Simon Peter, he is still not detracting from Jesus' teaching ministry. He says he's teaching. In, in, in the verse, the crowd came to hear the word of God, didn't they? And here in verse number three, Jesus taught the people. His teaching ministry is primary. Primary to Jesus' ministry, more than the miracles, more than anything else, you find Jesus' teaching. You go to John, and you find that on the night of the, the, the Last Supper, what was he doing? He was in the upper room, and he taught them for hours. And, and sometime a day or two before that, he was on the Mount of Olives, and he was teaching his disciples. And he just was teaching Teaching, teaching, everything was an opportunity to teach. From day one, his ministry um, was about teaching. 
And, and it reminds us of everything that Jesus used. Think about some of the things that Jesus used. Our guide, by the way, in Israel that we use, his name is Aryeh. He, said, he keeps threatening to write a book called The Pointings of Jesus. And what he meant by that was Jesus was pointing to the birds. Look at the birds of the air. Look at the snakes on the ground. Consider the flowers that are on the, the hillside here. Um, look at the trees, the fig tree and the olive tree. And, and he used the, the sky and the clouds. He used children as an illustration. And so Jesus was using whatever was around him to teach. Now, what does that remind you of? It, it probably, you're not thinking the same way I am, so I'm going to help you out. Um, Deuteronomy chapter number four, he perfectly fulfilled what we call the Shema, the, the, the Hebrew people called the Shema. Remember that? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your might. And I want to point out something. I'm going to say this, in this uh, later on. The love of the Word of God comes first. Mom and Dad. Look at what the next verse is. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes, and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Does this not sound like Jesus Christ? The Word of God was right here. Everywhere he looked, he saw an illustration of the Word of God. He was constantly teaching. And why was he constantly teaching? Because God's Word was in his heart. He was the Word of God. Parents, how diligent are you to teach your children the Word of God? Not just during devotional time, but at their teachable times. Wherever you are, do you, do you teach your children or do you phone it in to the church to take care of your kids? The way Deuteronomy chapter 4 verses 6 to 9 lays it out is what comes first? The love of the Word of God. The love and knowledge of God's Word is first and primary. And when that is true then what is true of your life is that you teach it diligently to your children because we as parents teach our children what we love. That's why my children made the wise choice to root for the Cowboys. <laughs> I know the joke falls flat after I do it so many times, but I can't resist. But it's true. If dad loves cars, son loves cars. If mom loves a certain thing, baking, daughters end up liking baking, don't they? We teach our children what we love. And one of the things that we are called to love is God in His Word. Do you love God's Word? Jesus had perfect knowledge of Scripture, but... Because he was word incarnate, but he didn't have to teach the word because he was the word. Whatever came out of his mouth was authoritative at that time. So, so that's the setting. That's all the teaching going on. 
But I want to draw our attention now to the miracle. We see, first of all, that Jesus is omnipotent. Now realize that what is going on in this passage, Luke is highlighting the magnificence of Jesus, the deity of Jesus, the fact that he is God himself. Jesus finished teaching, and he turns his attention to Peter, James and John, and most likely Andrew, who had been fishing all night long with no success. Sound familiar? <laughs> that was me. I fish a lot of times with no success. Matter of fact, when I was up in Wisconsin, we would have these ice fishing derbies that went all night long. I would put out tip-ups and have no success all night long. You, you, I don't know if anybody knows what a tip-up is, but uh, all night long with no success. I know how those guys feel. So he told Peter, put out into the deep and let your nets down for a catch. And it is here that we learn that Jesus is no mere human. Is he human? Oh, yeah, he is. Is he God? Oh, yes, he is. And the son of a carpenter tells professional fishermen to let down their nets. Now, a little backstory here. The, the way that this is laid out, we know that the nets, that he said, go to the deep. And this is something that they did at nighttime. And so for him to tell them to throw their nets out in the middle of the daytime was, or in the morning or whenever it was, was kind of ludicrous. The nighttime fishing was what was best for them. And so he tells them to let down their nets. And what, is, what does Simon Peter say? And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night long and took nothing but at your word, here, here again, emphasis on Jesus' word, right? On, at your word, I will let down the nets. Now he tells Jesus, we toiled all night long. You know what that word is? It's a word that means to work so hard that you're weary. It, it describes backbreaking work. It's not easy work at all. It's backbreaking work. And Peter was a captive audience in the boat. He just got to listen to this guy teach. I don't know how long Jesus taught. He just got to listen to him teach. He's a captive audience. Maybe he had heard Jesus teach before, but there was something going on in his mind right now saying, I should listen to this guy, even though I know that he used to be a carpenter. No doubt he heard of the healing miracles of Jesus. And even though he was tired from working, and from being up all night and cleaning the nets, Peter did what? He trusted Jesus. And that's the thing, second thing that we learn about Jesus and his power is that Jesus can be trusted. All power, all authority is given to him so he can be trusted. So Peter heard the word of Jesus. He trusted the word of Jesus and he obeyed the word of Jesus. And this is the response of anyone who knows Jesus, isn't it? The Lord can be trusted in anything that he says. You take scripture and it can be trusted in anything that it says. Anything at all. Now we believe that, don't we? And we say that. But many times we pick and choose what we're going to trust. 
Admit it, we do. Don't we? We try to use manipulative tactics with our children to get desired responses instead of trusting the power of prayer like what Leslie was talking about today in God's Word. Instead of leaving our self-defense to the Lord, we take vengeance into our own hands. We, we work to find our joy by earthly means. A spouse, children, careers, money, hobbies. When the Bible tells us that joy is found in Jesus Christ, we try to find it elsewhere. And we come up empty. Jeremiah calls it empty cisterns. When we could have a well springing forth with, with all kinds of refreshing water. Churches. They use pragmatic means to draw a crowd instead of dependent upon God and His Word. I remember when I was visiting Jordan and Hannah in Boise, we drove by a church. He said that church had, had a helicopter egg drop for Easter Sunday. Remember showing me that church? Um, and so whatever works to draw a crowd, instead of just relying upon Jesus, let me say this. If Jesus is God, then He can be trusted right? He can. And so Jesus can be trusted, but notice also that Jesus' sovereign provision is seen here. In verse number six, it says, and when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners on the other boat to help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. Now, I don't know about you, but I want Jesus in my next fishing tournament. Yeah, we'll just cast right over here. But in reality, here, here's the miracle, isn't it? This is the miracle. This is the revelation of who Jesus is. Now, here, here's a question. Is this miracle a miracle of knowledge? In other words, Jesus knew supernaturally where the fish were or was this a miracle of power Jesus brought the fish in well, we don't know the answer to that question do we all we know is that Jesus had intimate knowledge and control of nature didn't he so it could have been either one but it doesn't really matter because it was a miracle over creation and that's what we see but another thing that we also have to ask is this. Why this miracle? Why did Luke include this miracle in his narrative? And this is, this is the important part. Did Luke include this miracle to show you and I that God provides for our physical needs? Answers, I don't think so. This miracle is transformed into a parable that Jesus uses to explain his kingdom work. Th this is what's going on with this miracle. Peter and the other fishermen, think about this. Peter and the other fishermen relied upon their knowledge, their experience, and their hard work to ensure success. After all, they're professionals. And what, was, what did Luke say? Luke said they toiled 
They weren't lazy. They, they worked till exhaustion. And what did they come up with? Nothing. They came up empty, didn't they? But with a single word, with a single sentence, Jesus guided them to the largest catch they'd ever seen. It was a catch of a lifetime. The kind of thing that a fisherman would talk about for the rest of his days. You know what I'm talking about? The fish was this big, right? The, the, the thing that you talk about. But it was also a miracle. It was something that went beyond the ordinary laws of nature. Jesus, the Son of God, knows their vocation better than do the fishermen. He knows their needs better than they know their needs. And so what was Peter's response to this revelation of who Jesus was? What was his response to the revelation of the power and the knowledge and the sovereignty of Almighty God? Well, his response was in verse number 8. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. He realized that he's in the presence of divinity. He's in the presence of the Messiah. Now, he may not at this time realize the full extent, but he's recognizing that he's in front of the Messiah. And what is his response? He humbled himself right there in the boat, and he confessed that he was a sinner. It says he fell down uh, at Jesus' knees. Now, these boats, they're, they're not a John boat or anything like that. They're about 30 feet long, these boats, about seven feet wide. And so he humbled himself right there. Suddenly he realized that he was so unworthy that he was not even, in, he was not even fit to ride in the same boat as Jesus. If I've ever wondered an application of, of, of Romans chapter uh, four, uh, four and verse number two and verse number four, it's right here. God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Look at that. The absolute kindness of Jesus Christ to Peter and these fishermen led to what? Their confession who they were. This is frequently the case of God's people. I said this is a theophany. Think back with me. When Isaiah saw the living God, he said this, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Remember Job? Job, I love Job. I know a lot of people don't like Job. I love Job. And when, when, um, when God starts speaking to Job, he never makes a statement. He only asks questions, right? And those questions are enough to cause Job, when he realized God's glory over all creation, to say, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job was confronted with the God of creation, and he realized that he, was, he needed to confess his sin. This is what happened to Peter, who fell in his boat, to worship Jesus with reverence and repentance. This was the great turning point of his life. And can I say it is for everyone who follows Jesus? Eventually, every disciple 
says what Peter said. I'm a sinful man. I'm a sinful woman. Or I'm a sinful boy and girl. Don't we all say that at some point in our lives? If we follow Jesus? And as soon as Peter half understood who Jesus was and what he was doing, he immediately, what did he do? He leaped to the wrong conclusion. When he saw what a sinner he was, he suddenly decided that there was no way for him to have any kind of relationship with Jesus at all. And you've never done that. And I've never done that, have we? Of course we have. Even though we understand the wonderful plan of salvation, even though we understand that if we are in Christ, His wrath does not lie upon us, what do we do when we sin? We run the other way. We don't pray. We don't confess. We grovel instead of running to God. When we finally see how sinful we really are, it's only natural for us to feel that way. And we don't deserve to come into God's presence. We feel that we're too guilty to be where God is. But this is exactly why Jesus came. Let this encourage you. He came to bring us close to God by dying on the cross for our sins. Our sinful, guilty hearts want to push Jesus away. But rather than pushing Him away, we should hold on to Him, asking Him for forgiveness, asking Him uh, to give us only what He can offer, unconditional love. Isn't that right? Oh, dear believer, where are you right now in this? Do you understand and realize how much forgiveness God has given you? It's complete and when we sin, rather than going away from God, rather than falling into the pit of self-pity, we need to turn to Jesus Christ and say, God, I know you have forgiven me, and I have sinned against you. I understand that. Lord, help me to follow you even better. Help me to re re reflect your majesty and your glory even better. We run to Christ instead of run away from him. Well, what happens? Well, Jesus doesn't leave a, a saint in that condition, does he? He never does. And so what Jesus does instead is he sets apart his saints for his work. Jesus never leaves a sinner who truly repents. And so he didn't leave Peter, but he said to him, what? Look at what he said. Do not be afraid. Aren't we fearful a lot of times? Do not be afraid. Part of Peter's anxiety was that he was too sinful to be useful. You ever felt that way? God can't use me. I just did X. It's getting kind of quiet in here. But it's true. That's the way we think. But look at what Jesus told him. Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. Every true disciple tells people about Jesus. Isn't that true? Don't you love telling people about Jesus? He described Peter's life as catching men. Now, 
The word catching, it's a compound word, and it means to take alive. But it's not like fishing, like you take the fish alive. Rather, it's, it's speaking of taking somebody, snatching somebody out of danger. And so you're taking somebody out of, out of danger. It's, it's rescuing people from the deep sea of their sin and bringing them safely to the shore of salvation. And this calling wasn't just for Peter, it's for everyone who follows Jesus Christ. Sometimes we're, we're tempted to believe that evangelism is something for Christians with the, the special gift. And I do believe that some people are more gifted with evangelism than others. But we are all called to evangelize. Maybe your job is to plant and water. And then there's those lucky people that get to bear the fruit, you know what I'm saying? It's not true, but I'm trying to characterize how, how it is it feels sometimes in the kingdom. Sometimes we think of evangelism as something for Christians with a special gift, and it's true that some people are gifted, that more gifted than others, but the call to tell people about Jesus is for every Christian. Evangelism is an ordinary part of everyday discipleship. Everyone who follows Jesus is called to be a kind of fisherman, aren't we? Every single one of us. Let us not take the analogy of fishing for men too far. We are to cast a net wide. Cast it wide. Inviting our neighbors to Bible study. Bringing our friends to church. Speaking to family members about spiritual things. Testifying to God's goodness in our daily lives. I do that all the time. The, the, the poor woman that cuts my hair, the five minutes it takes to cut my thinning hair, I, I testify to her what Jesus is doing. I'm always talking about God. I bring it around to that. And you do too, don't you? And what happens to people? You've seen it before. Their eyes, they glaze over, don't they? Do not let that discourage you. Do not let that discourage you at all because you don't know if you're planting or watering. Because one day, that testimony, that, that little bit that you say could end up bearing fruit. So keep doing it. We testify. We, we are called to cast a wide net by inviting our neighbors to Bible study, bringing our friends to church, speaking to family members, supporting Christian broadcasting, sending out foreign missionaries, and sharing the gospel every way we can. This is our calling both as a church and as individual Christians. You know, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get real for just a minute about the gritty parts of ministry. I often get people who tell me or ask me, and it's not really, they're not really asking, it's almost like an accusation, what is our church doing to reach our community? What I often want to do is turn the question around and say, what are you doing to reach your neighbors first? Right? Because that's how the church reaches its community. We are a corporate body, but when we leave here, we are individuals going out casting, casting the net wherever we can. That's how the church reaches its community. It's not the only way, 
But it's the main way. That's the main way that God has called for us to reach our community. What are we doing to reach our neighbors? But to do this, we have to trust the sovereignty of God and the power of God. Will we catch anything? Never by our own abilities. Not one of us have ever evangelized somebody successfully in our own abilities. Not one. We should never let what may seem like our ineffectiveness in evangelism prevent us from doing what God has called us to do. In the same way that a fisherman keeps casting his nets, same way you guys go out to the pond and drown worms, just because you didn't catch something doesn't mean you quit, do you? We may catch people in places where we least expect it, We are called to keep sharing our faith, keep sharing our faith, keep sharing our faith. And we may bring in more people than we could ever imagine, or it may seem like the pickings are slim. After all, that's what happened to Peter on the Sea of Galilee. But whatever the results, whatever the results, God has called us to keep casting our gospel net because this is how He saves sinners. Isn't that wonderful? When Jesus called Peter to fish for men, he gave him a promise. He said, you will be catching men. But that promise isn't just for Peter. We have the same promise. Let me tell you something. None of us will ever preach like Peter, will we? But God will use his word to bring people to faith in Christ. And that's where we need to rely upon him. My constant prayer And your constant prayer, my constant prayer is, and I hope yours is too, is the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out labors in this harvest. Earnestly pray that. Consistently pray that. Constantly pray that. What God does with our witness, that's His business. But our business is to fish for men. And this means supporting the mission of the church locally and globally. It means inviting friends to church. It means praying for people in need. It means having a short gospel presentation ready at a moment's notice. It means praying for a lost family members. It means getting involved in ministries that share the gospel. It means speaking up and not staying silent. So cast your net into the teeming shoals of humanity and see what God does while he catches by his sovereign grace. Isn't it wonderful that it's not our own abilities that matter? It's Jesus Christ. That's what matters. Now, let's look at the end of the story. What's the end of the story? Well, they left it all behind. And when they brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. And this is where we stop and sing together, I've decided to follow Jesus. Uh, This is not what we're going to do. But I want you to understand that at the height, at the height of what is surely one of the greatest catches, certainly the most memorable catch, they leave their profession behind. A disciple leaves everything behind to follow Jesus. Absolutely everything. Now, here's the question that some of you are asking And all of us should be asking, what does it mean to leave everything behind? What does it mean? 
For Peter, for his friends, it meant that they left their career ambitions. And for some of you, that may be true. It was true of me. Two years of pre-med in college, God called me to the ministry. I abandoned my dreams of becoming a doctor. And I tell you what, I do not regret it one second at all. But for most of us, that's not what God calls us to leave behind. For everyone, everyone in this room, leaving it all behind means leaving your, own, your old sins, doesn't it? Leaving behind the way that you have always lived. Being, the Bible says, that those who are without Christ, it's self-interest first. And you leave that behind and you have Jesus' interest first. You leave behind the right to call your life your own. Paul told the Corinthians, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. Why? Because you were bought with a price. And so therefore, we glorify God with our body. Many people will, uh, for, uh, many people will say they want to follow Jesus. But instead of leaving everything behind, they try to take it all with them. It's Jesus and. They call themselves Christians, but they're not willing to give up their selfish ambitions, sinful pleasures, comfort and comfortable surroundings, bitter grudges, precious idols, or simply the right to live the way they want to live. Can you imagine... If Peter and his buddies had decided that they weren't going to leave everything behind, and so every place, when they, when they went up to Jerusalem with Jesus, they drugged their nets and their boats with them. It's ridiculous, isn't it? Imagine hauling their bo boats and nets around all the towns and villages where Jesus preached. Imagine them dragging all their fishing equipment up to Jerusalem when Jesus went up there to die. Obviously, if they tried to do that, they never would have been able to follow Jesus at all. And it's true of us. Until we decide to follow Jesus and leave behind those things that we know we need to leave behind, we're not really following Him, are we? How foolish is it for us to pretend that we're following Jesus when in fact we want to keep our lives intact the way they are? But it's not just one part of our lives that He tells us to give over to Him. He demands all of us, all of us, True discipleship is costly. It's always costly. And here's why. Why is true discipleship always costly? Because it means giving up what we want so we can have what Jesus wants for us. And when we do this in principle, when we begin to follow Jesus, then we do it in practice every time something threatens to stand between us and our commitment to Christ. And that's how you tell. That's how you tell what you need to leave behind. You look at something and you say, is this standing between me and my commitment to Christ? I've, I've talked about this before. One of the things I gave up was golf. I know that sounds silly, but two times, years apart, I caught myself standing on the front row in the morning service thinking about my golf swing. And I realized I can't golf. I went out with uh, Happy one time. Happy beat me, made me mad. But you know what I did? For the next few days, I was thinking about my golf swing. I'm going to go beat Happy next time I play him, right? 
And that's just a small thing. It's just a small thing, but we have to think that way. What occupies your mind time? So much so that it displaces Jesus Christ and his glory. You see, it's important for us to understand that. Well, I need to close. You know what happens when you get saved? When you start following Jesus? And this is the amazing part. Jesus will change your affections. He will change your desires so that you desire things that truly satisfy you. He'll give you more satisfying desires. And that is, that is what is behind Proverbs 37.4. The psalmist said, not victory in Jesus. There we go. Okay, I didn't include this verse. Let me just read it. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will what? Give you the desires of your heart. When you delight in the Lord, He's your desire, and He gives that to you. The most satisfying delight in all the world. This is an amazing passage. This is a wonderful passage. To know that God calls us to cast a net and the amount of fish that comes in is totally up to Him. We, we try to do church ministry. We try to raise our children. We try to do things in our own power. We don't bathe them in prayer. We don't ask what's most glorifying to God. We say, hey, we did it last time. We can do it again. We'll do it. We are whatever. And the focus is on us. Instead, the focus should be on Jesus Christ and His glory and His honor. And when that is true, you will have joy and satisfaction. And you know what else? You will see God in all His glory. Isn't that wonderful? Lord, we thank You for this simple little passage. It's so um, encouraging to see that we don't do things in our own strength. We do it in the strength of Jesus Christ. And that's everything because of the glory of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that we will see you in all your glory. And when we do that, Lord, we will want to tell others about this glorious Savior that we have. As I said earlier, I want to pray that you will send out laborers into the harvest field for the harvest field around Providence in Culpeper and Fredericksburg in Warrington and Madison. Those harvest fields are white. May we cast the net, Lord, and pray pray, pray, because it's your sovereign power that makes the catch possible. In Christ's name, amen.